Hello and welcome to the Roper Report Glasses Podcast in association with Sunderland Community Soup Kitchen and Her Game 2, the campaign against sexism and misogyny in football. Sunderland AFC have got a game coming up at the weekend in the FA Women's Championship against Lewis and um, we're very honoured to be joined on today's podcast by the Chief Executive of Lewis Football Club, Maggie Murphy. Um, how are you this morning, Maggie? Yeah, good. Good, thank you, Rich. Um, uh, staring out of blue skies in Lewis. I hope it's the same up there. Um, but if not, <laughs> we'll try and bring it. It's a bit cloudy. I'm over here in Wales. I don't know what it's like in the north, in the northeast. But um, yeah, inclement weather at the minute. But I uh, can't complain. It doesn't mean the, the, the heating has to go on quite as much, which is, is good for everyone at the minute. But I just wanted to start by, by introducing you. So obviously... You had a career previous to this in anti-corruption, human rights, that kind of thing, but now you're running a football club. And I read that your journey into kind of running football or football governance started in some ways on Mount Kilimanjaro. So can you tell me a little bit about that and how it led to you being involved with Lewis? Yeah, sure. So I'm aware that it's a bit of an unusual routine and I never meant to work in football. I, I really shouldn't be here. I never wanted to be here. Um, and honestly, if I'd just been allowed to play football growing up as a teenager and as a as a woman, I wouldn't be here very genuinely. So I played football as a kid, loved it. It was the one sport where I could actually get quite physical and tough and mm-hmm. be strong. You know, I was bored of netball. I was bored of, I had to do trampolining at school. You know, it's like, come on. I wanted to just get stuck into something. So so I, when I was allowed to play football, we didn't have a, a, you know any girls' clubs where I was growing up on the Isle of Wight uh, back in the 90s and thousands. But whenever I was allowed, you know, the school would put in a girls' football team once a year to a tournament. I just loved it. Um, started playing for an adult team when I was a teenager. I, was, I think I was about 13 when I was playing adult football. So football's always been a part of my life. It's always been something I've done on the side. It's always been uh, my release, my escape. But as you said, my career was in anti-corruption and human rights and that took me around the world I lived in Rwanda Senegal Tanzania the Caribbean for a bit and everywhere I went I always found a team to play for so some of my best football memories are uh, winning the national cup final in Tanzania on a dusty pitch you know <laughs> that kind of thing so um, so I was always curious about the world I was always interested in this in in how the world can function better for people my work in human rights and anti-corruption is often around poverty in developing countries and trying to figure out the system that kept people back. And I was working in corruption at the time of the latest FIFA corruption scandal, or one of the latest, let's say, mm-hmm. which led to the Qatar World Cup. Let's go back to 2014, 15, 16. And I was, sorry, working in, in corruption, was reading all the documents and it suddenly became clear to me, the more that I read around it, that often the bribes that were used, the the, the money to pay the bribes to secure the World Cup, a lot of the time they, they came from the development budget lines that football mm-hmm. associations would have, and development is often code for women and youth. And so I realized that literally these bribes were being paid and that's what was holding women back and the people at FIFA didn't really care that much about women's football. They didn't care about me. They didn't care about all the small challenges that I'd gone through just to play the most popular game in the world. This isn't rocket science. It's just, can I play mm-hmm. a, a game, like just a game? And so I became a little bit mobilised around that time, and I'm sorry that this answer is now longer than you're expecting. No, no, it's absolutely fine. It's fascinating, really. That's very, very current at the minute with with Qatar just about to start. It does go all the way around in circles, I guess. Um, and so I guess at that at that time in 20 kind of 15, 
16, I started connecting with other women around the world. You know, I'd obviously played with women around the world and a group of us came together to do something special, to do something that wouldn't be classed as like a B version or brackets women, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So we decided that we would climb to the top of Kilimanjaro. We, we, we took five days, five, six days to climb to the top. And when we got to the very, very top, we laid a full size football pitch and played a 90 minute match at the top. And when the final whistle went and it was nil nil terrible game could hardly breathe and we had oxygen at the side we had a medic up with us you know it was uh, it was pretty intense the conditions um but when the final whistle went we both set both teams celebrated because essentially we just set a guinness world record for the highest altitude football match ever played and that still stands today so and it was all women women from about 20 30 different countries funnily enough every single one of our officials at the top they had to be fifa officials so we had to scour for scour the not very big pool of female FIFA officials and since that day actually a lot of us have gone on to do very very different things like there is no way that I'd be a chief exec of a football club if it wasn't for that day but we also have one of the referees that um, came with us that day Salma from Rwanda is now going to Qatar to referee at the Men's World Cup so there's lots and lots of stories of incredible women that came up and did that who are now doing incredible things so I think it was at the time we thought that was the thing that was our kind of screw you world we can do this too and give us some damn respect but in essence that was only the start and I think a lot of us have gone on to to be quite mobilized and and just trying to basically all we're trying to do is create the world we want when it comes to football create football clubs that care about us and treat us uh, with respect and value us with respect that's all it is it's nothing it's nothing that radical it's just you know trying to create the things we didn't have when we were growing up I guess what was it that led you towards Sussex and Lewis and this little football club? Because it's not 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 a big famous name in in English football in general, or hasn't been until until recently, where you know you've got a, a wonderful reputation. What is it that drew you towards Lewis, and what is it now that makes Lewis such a kind of unique and almost pioneering football club? Yeah. So so funnily enough, when 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 I was growing up on the Isle of Wight and I played for that women's team and this this is absolutely crazy when I think back to it my first ever game ever that I played was against Lewis at the Dripping Pan (laughs) I was literally 13 I was two weeks short of my 14th birthday 14 at that time was the age that you were allowed to play adult football so I was playing under somebody else's name so even if the records were ever kept my name wouldn't be there because I was playing under I don't know somebody called Sarah I remember scoring three goals that day and Sarah got all those goals (laughs) (laughs) For the season so i i did know i had been to the club i had i had this I, I had incredible memory you know like if you're a 13 year old kid you remember your debut um your adult yeah, debut yeah, yeah. so but i hadn't thought about lewis for you know 20 plus years or so so when i came down from kilimanjaro and that was in 2017 in i think we went up in june about two months later i literally just saw a tweet which was from Lewis FC, this tiny club that I barely remembered. I kind of was like, is that that club? That was my reaction. Is that that club that I played once or twice when I was a kid? And it just said, you know, imagine a world where male and female players were played the same. Now you don't need to imagine anymore. It was something really simple. No marketing brand had got involved. It was just something super simple. And it was at that time that they had taken the decision to split 
revenue equally between the men and the women, which most people understand as pay parity, but actually translates as lots more. So, you, you know, you're looking at marketing budgets are equal, the facilities use, the, you know, and for me, actually, it all comes down to equal treatment and equal value. So up until that point, the women's team had done a really good job. They were in the third tier at the time, but it, it was a case of even with the team in the third tier, you know, they, the, the, the crowds that came were mainly family and friends. No one knew. How would they know to go to the game if, they, mm-hmm. if it wasn't marketed? All those classic things that we're still struggling with in women's football. So so I saw it and I became an owner straight away because the really cool thing about Lewis FC is that anyone can become an owner. I was online and I, I clicked three times, became an owner, and I said to myself, I'll probably never go there. I don't even care about the results. All I want is that that club to know that I back them. You know, it was actually quite awe-inspiring. Like I, I was suddenly filled with hope that that there could be a different future, that there were people that, I don't know, if I turned up to a game and I walked through the gate, that people might not stare at me or jeer at me or ask me if I knew the offside or all that kind of crap that a lot of women have gone through and hopefully less today. But I just loved the idea that I would walk in somewhere and people would be <laughs> friendly and warm and welcoming and like to have me there and would value my presence, even if I wasn't going to go. So my path started crossing a little bit more because I was, even though I still had my career in anti-corruption and was still traveling around the world with that, I was becoming more and more active with this group of women with whom I, I've climbed Kilimanjaro. We're called Equal Playing Field. We still exist, a charity that supports women and girls around the world in football. And bit by bit, we were involving Lewis and we were asking Lewis if they'd like to do X, Y, Z. And uh, eventually one of the directors just picked up the phone and called me and asked me if I'd come and join. And my instant reaction was to laugh and say, no, 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 you don't understand. I've, I've got my career (laughs) the football stuff is still on the side I don't want to be involved in football but I think at that point I also realized that it meant too much to me it meant so much to me and I felt like if I wasn't going to put my money where my mouth was who was and I've also got this background now in advocacy and campaigning and lobbying and governments and systems and I just felt like maybe I had to figure out if it was possible to use those skills to create a better football system because for me it's not just about the clubs the clubs can do one thing but it's also about how the fa functions and how the structures work and how fifa interacts with the fas and yeah i thought damn i better try and see if i can give this a go we, we will come back to talk about some of those wider issues later on but we really should talk about the football match that we've got on sunday you're quite clearly like a football person football man person it's a, a long way from Sussex to Sunderland. I think think it's the longest anywhere in English women's football, longest journey between Lewis and Sunderland. Yeah, I wonder whether it might actually be the furthest in all football. I don't know. I, I don't know who Plymouth Argyle maybe Ooh. have in their league, but... It might have used to have been Sunderland men against Plymouth Argyle men last season, uh, but it might now be the longest journey. It is 320-odd miles or something like that, a little bit further than Southampton. Long, long way. Then you've got the M25 to deal with as well between the two. So will you be making the trip up and are you looking forward to the game on Sunday? Yeah, I, I can't make it at the weekend. Oh. There you go. Um, I'll slap my wrist now. Um, I, I can't make it. I would have loved to have come because I wasn't able to make last year's either. We're doing a bit of shuffling around. You know, Obviously, I was the general manager for a couple of years, now chief exec. So we, I have my brilliant colleague, Lynn, who's our general manager, who will obviously be there. I've also, in the last year, brought on on board the brilliant Kelly Lindsay uh, as our head of performance. She oversees the men's football and the women's football. And money is incredibly tight. So uh, we do think about the spots on the coach and the spots in the hotel. We don't have the luxury of just taking everyone that we'd want. So yeah, I'll be sacrificing it this time. But I would love to come up. I haven't seen 
the situation up at Sunderland yet. But yeah, so I won't be traveling. Uh, and it's a long trip, international break as well. So mm-hmm. right now, so, you know, we only get the players back. We've we've got a, a, a number of players who are away at the moment. Uh, and they're doing a fair bit of traveling right now as well. So uh, I'm hoping that we'll be refreshed. Maybe we'll be able to sleep on that long coach journey up. Well, absolutely. And um, I think we've got... Uh... Uh, an early kickoff as well, isn't it? Um, and that's a bit re- reciprocity between the the clubs, really, isn't it? Helping yeah. helping people get back, um, yeah. you know, at a reasonable time on the Sunday night, early Monday morning, especially with yeah. players uh, having having other careers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Lewis have had a, a really decent start to the season, particularly the the last two two wins in the last two games. Um, mm-hmm. What were your ambitions? kind of on the on the pitch at the start of the season for the for the women well here's where kelly comes in so kelly um our head of performance i think uh, if you don't know her background i mean she's far more impressive and incredible than i am or anything that i've done before coming to lewis she was the director of women's football for morocco who you might have right. heard have just got into their first ever world cup so we're going for the world cup right <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, so I think one of the major things that Kelly's taught us at Lewis is there are certain things we can control and there's certain things we can't. And so deciding that we're going to get X number of points per game or that we're going to finish at some level in the table is actually kind of not the best goals for us to put down on paper. Because if we don't achieve them, even if we've worked really hard and been really successful and but a last minute goal has gone in a couple of times against us or whatever it might be, then we'll just end up feeling terrible. So she's really got us thinking about our environment and our professionalism. And so we've been working very, very, very hard on on the controllables. So we're trying to control the controllables, which sounds like a cliche, but it's really changed our thinking at Lewis over the last 12 months. So we want to compete. Obviously, the players want to be up there. We want to be strong, but we don't really, we can't control what all the other teams are doing. So we Mm -hmm. can't really put a number on it. We've worked very, very hard on our structure. We do train during the day, um, during the week, and we've been checking and modifying and looking into the best structure for that we've already tweaked or changed it once or twice this season already in terms of which days or which times or what we do on each day Um, we've got a brilliant coach in at the moment as well Scott Booth and so all of this has added to us creating an environment that that we hope is now going to unlock the potential of the players where where maybe we didn't quite manage it previously and then underpinning all of that is our culture like we really really do try to work hard on on culture and value and respect we don't have any knockout stars in Lewis like and that's absolutely no disrespect to the players because I think all of them are stars but you know we don't that's not how we function we function like what's the best way to bring a team together what's the best way to um, make sure that everyone is part of the process I thought it was fascinating when the Lionesses won the Euros how unified that whole squad was even with people that hadn't got a minute on the pitch and I guess that was that that's kind of what we're aiming for we won't we won't we're not going to maybe get there in in the way that Serena Beegman has been able to manage it but I'm fascinated I'd love to watch a seven-part documentary on her so if anyone's going to do that you know I'd, I'd love to watch it but you know that's what we're trying to go for like how do you create a unified team where the staff and the players are all pulling together. That sounds quite waffly. I, I know that it sounds like it's full of cliches, but I guess we're trying to be as good as we can be and we don't know how good we can be yet because we haven't sorted ourselves out professionally, um, structurally, environmentally, with the ecosystem, with our medical care, with our psychological support. Uh, but we're, 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 so, we're so much better than we were a few years ago, even though 
at the moment we're still middle of the table Lewis so we're middle of the table but wow ev everyone has like pulled themselves up um but we've worked so hard on the things that people might not see behind the scenes I think yeah and there's it, it's such a competitive division isn't it? it 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 very much is you know any given game could go either way even you know Coventry who are really struggling yeah. or seem to be in nearly every game they play um and and gave you a a good a good game the other week as well um you say that you know you haven't got any big stars in your team but you as a as a football fan i guess who 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 do you love watching from from your side is there a one or two players who you think when when they're in the starting lineup or when they get on the ball now something's going to happen now I mean, uh, there's a few of them that I find that I, I smile when I'm watching. Like, Bex McKenna is a fantastic mm -hmm. player. I love I love watching her great determination. Izzy Dalton in our midfields, uh, her free kicks are incredible. Just, you know, I just I wish that they would stop hitting the bar last season. I think there was some time <laughs> when she hit the crossbar five times or something on, on free kicks, which is, uh, became a, a bit of a running joke. I think that we've got very young players coming through. So we've got a couple of England under-19s on our books now. So you've got Emma Thompson up front and then Grace Palmer in, in midfields. Both doing really well, super young, but, you know, mm -hmm. huge futures ahead of them. Pulled out a couple of players there. But I think over the seasons, there's been players that I've always smiled when I've seen on the team sheet. I have nothing to do with the team sheet. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it really is a whole team effort. I'll, I'll give you an example. Rihanna, our captain, you know, if she's on the pitch, it's not even how she plays, but it's how she's managing the whole thing. She's yeah. like pulling the strings without necessarily touching the ball for 10 minutes. And, and it's just really interesting to see, to watch her. I, I like watching her to see how it is that she's organizing and managing and, and um, playing football, you know, yeah. <laughs> through her mouth, essentially. And she's got she's got a, like that massive range of experience as well about the game and and how it works. Mm. Rihanna's going to be somebody we're going to have to keep an eye on on Sunday. But um, it took you a long time to appoint a successor to Simon Parker last season, didn't mm -hmm. it? You had a you had an interim yeah. uh, manager who did who did a did a great job, but then you, you eventually went for the kind of very experienced figure of Scott Booth. Uh, was he always like the number one choice for the club, or was it? Um, was there a, like a really competitive process to to find that that head coach? We we did a proper process. It lasted probably about five six months in the end. Mm -hmm. I think recruitment for us is very very important. And with all with all the candidates that we spoke to, I think that at the end they all said we've never really gone through a process a hiring process like this. I think normally people are used to having a phone call or an agent slips a message or hey this club want you are you up for it. And with us, no, we had a recruitment process. So we went through two, three, four rounds. You know, candidates met with lots of us at the club. There was a lot that we wanted to do. I think that we wanted to, I don't know, check our own bias in some ways as well. So making sure that we had lots of people involved in the process and making sure that we had lots of elements to that process was really important to us. And so, yeah, it was pretty rigorous. I'm, I'm pretty sure that everyone was happy when it was done. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and it started all the way back this time last year um when we were designing the kind of job spec which i think in the end ran to like five pages or something um so we were really rigorous and again this is down to to, to kelly thinking through a much more professional way of doing recruitment rather than 
oh, that person's done a good job over there. Let's bring them in. Because again, our culture is really important. So just because they've done really well somewhere else, they might not necessarily fit in here. And, you know, our budgets are tight as well. So you've got to have somebody that's creative or, or doesn't buy their way out of a problem as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think we were looking for the, you know, that culture piece, the wisdom, the professionalism, that, that can you manage your staff as well as manage your team, mm-hmm. um, that environmental side of things, you know, and Scott's been a, an incredible addition to the club. So yeah, absolutely delighted that he's with us. He is a, you know, well-respected figure as well. And you talk there about the professionalism and the, that, that being a real driver behind the scenes at Lewis. How would you describe the model that you've got now? Are you a part-time outfit? Is it, are you saying that you're training in daytimes as well? So are the players kind of full-time professionals or some players who are and some players who are in, got other jobs and careers and education? How's the model looking at Lewis right now? Yeah, uh, the labels aren't very helpful, are they? Uh, they? They mean different things for different people. I tend not to say that they are full-time professional because I don't think we can, I, I don't think we're paying them enough to justify that label. So the players are incredibly dedicated. They are, what we wanted to do, which is the shift that we went through last season, not this season, was to try to make football the priority. So previously, so when I first arrived in my first season, two seasons, the, you know, the, the women were training three times a week in the evening and we did the shift so that they could train. So we were basically trying to, they had bit part jobs around it. A couple of them had careers and a couple of them had to either decide what to do with their careers, whether to transition with us or whether they would continue with their careers and play football a, a level down and, and carry on training in the evening. But we basically wanted all those people that were playing football in the evening, but doing all these other bit part cafe jobs or cleaning jobs or casual jobs, PT jobs or something. We wanted to flip it so that those would be in the evening or those would be on the days off and that football would be their priority. And so that's what we've managed to do is, is that for most of the players here, football's a priority. And then they'll add in other things around if they need to or they want to. We also find subsidized accommodation. Accommodation is very, very very Mm -hmm. expensive in in Lewis and so we work hard behind the scenes all year long trying to find subsidized accommodation to to lower their bills as well if if you if you get what I mean um so yeah it's a bit of a mix really it's a it's a on paper it's full-time or kind of full-time on paper they're in five days a week or four days a week depending and on paper they're kind of full-time professional but I just don't I'm not comfortable with that with those labels yet not until I can get in a lot more money to, to to pay them better let's say you know that's always really important to remember as well that these are working women who have got other jobs other commitments family etc and as you say the cost of accommodation in some ways you know that's one of the advantages of the northeast of england it is it isn't like sussex which you know is very wealthy but i'm sure has pockets of poverty like anywhere else as well and 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 the kind of the gap between rich and poor around your area will be quite you know stark really but you know that gap between rich and poor does take us on to kind of some of the the issues in in football in the women's championship in particular there's a increasing number of kind of professional men's sides who've whose women's teams are in the championship obviously we've got Southampton have come up putting vast amounts of money in and they're not so far away from yourselves Mm -hmm. do you think that there is like a future for part-time or non-full-time football long-term in the women's championship do you think that you know we're coming to an end of it I think we are I mean even if you just uh, so again so I've not been at Lewis all that long three three and a bit three and Mm -hmm. a half years 
when I first arrived, it was only maybe one or two, one team, two teams maybe that had, in fact, even when Aston Villa got promoted, when they won the league that year, they trained, from what I understand, they trained three times in the evening and some of their players came in uh, during the day, two days a week. Like that's, that's only five training sessions in total. That's not, that's so far from being full time. And yet they won the league that year and went up. That was three seasons ago. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're already seeing a huge shift. Uh, the thing that I would really like to preserve is not necessarily the, the 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 part-time nature, but the ability for clubs to figure it out themselves and to do their own versions. I think sometimes our license criteria can force us to become quite cookie cutter. Like every club mm-hmm. should look like this. Every club should employ this. Every club should pay this amount of money to these people. And I'm like, well, Sunderland to Lewis is completely different. And so I think that sometimes we have to figure out what what is right. Could it be possible for a team to remain part-time or train in the evenings and, and sweep up all those players who can't train during the day and still be competitive in the league? I think that is possible, especially if you live in an area where there's lots of WSL clubs or other championship clubs, um, where there's players that may be transitioning out or retiring or wanting to go into a career I just want I do want there to be flexibility I don't want us all to look the same I don't want us all to have to be cookie cutter clubs of each other because I think that's where the real beauty is in the championship you've got you know four teams that are not attached to big men's clubs and and those four are incredibly different from each other and I I wish that was something that we could champion and celebrate and showcase and be proud of as opposed to something that sometimes I feel like is a bit of an issue or a bit of a challenge or a bit problematic for the FA's marketing department let's say. And obviously Sunderland have been on the receiving end of those changes down the years whether it's been been denied promotion to the WSL or inclusion in the WSL to begin with and then being demoted from the WSL when the license requirements were changed at the time when we didn't have a an ownership that had any interest in in women's football and Tottenham and Man United and West Ham did want to. And the expansion of the WSL structures is something we often discuss amongst fans. There's the issue, you know, at the minute of the stop-start nature of the season, the fact that there is only 22 league games in this season, so you've got that small product in the sense of the, the volume of football played. And then you've got the likes of Wolves, Nottingham Forest, Ipswich, Leeds and Newcastle, who are all at National League level, clearly be wanting to get into at least the top two tiers as, as quickly as possible. And then added to that, you've got this persistent rumour that the Men's Premier League will be the organisation that takes over the WSL structures at the end of the current TV and sponsorship deals. So do you have a lot of fear based upon those kinds of those changes that might be imminent and what what role do you think club like Lewis but also you know a, a Coventry United a, a Durham or a London City have got to play in those conversations do you feel like you've got power and influence in that or do you think that you know the Southamptons even the Sunderlands the Crystal Palaces and all of those clubs that aren't in the, the WSL there is that where the power is is it with the money essentially I think that all clubs have a lot more power than they realize Mm -hmm. i think that we're going through a a consultation phase at the moment with clubs around the new ownership structure um and and to be 100 percent open and transparent i'm on the i was elected onto the wsl and championship board uh just over a year ago and so i am part of all those conversations around the new ownership um structure 
and I think that what is really important is that clubs with this consultation that they they do spend the time they they dedicate time to really understand it to really think about it don't just show up at Wembley and, and suddenly find that you're in a vote and regret that vote in a few years time uh, mm-hmm. on anything um, because I think that the, the plan is only for the clubs to have more responsibility and authority and therefore accountability but clubs have to dig in they have to understand the, the structure they have to understand what's at stake and yeah for me when I'm in that room debating some of these issues yes I am I am afraid of anything which is going to continue to speed up the Premier Leagueization of women's football I want Premier League clubs to be investing in their women's team what I don't want is the structures that regulate the game to encourage and celebrate and promote that over what other clubs have been doing for a, for a much longer time to promote women's football. So I think it's more about what decisions are being taken. Uh, well, what are the kinds of decisions that we're making? And, and are they intentionally making it hard for small clubs to compete? You know, these license requirements that tighten and tighten year on year when actually a club might want to spend money on a different area, but they're being told that they have to, uh, you know, this is a very real one for us. We had to improve our floodlights. Mm-hmm. Even if we wanted to invest in our medical team, <laughs> we we had to have a certain lux light level for our floodlights. So those kinds of things, which felt quite frustrating. That's quite low level maybe. But so what I mean is clubs have power. They have to exercise it and they have to dig in and understand and learn about the issues. Because if they don't, then the bigger clubs that have big legal teams, they will be calling the shots. Because they will mm-hmm. understand the consequences. They will be much more involved at, say, Premier League level if they are on the men's side as well. So they'll understand what these different votes mean. But it's very difficult for a small club of ours where I don't have a legal team. <laughs> um, you know, London City probably don't have a legal team. Does anyone have a legal team? But do, do you see what I mean? I, oh, yeah, I think yeah. It's, it's not enough to complain. We all have agency and we have to have our voices heard. We've got this independent review on women's football right now. Yeah. Lewis did make a submission. I would hope that other clubs did, but whether they did is another thing. And those are the opportunities. Those are the things that people have to see sometimes and understand that this they're part of it. This is, we're co-creating this. And, you know, the other thing is sometimes you just got to be brave and speak up and, 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 and being brave doesn't mean you have a solution. Being brave might be asking the dumb question. Like that's, I think for me, that's, that, that would be my biggest frustration. If I'm, if I were to go back to my general manager days and being in the meetings with all the clubs, I felt like sometimes I was the only one asking dumb questions because I didn't understand, but also because I was pretty sure that sometimes we were going, we were being led down a garden path or, you know, it was my, it was my yeah, fears. Yeah. And sometimes I asked a dumb question and then it was answered. And I'm like, okay, cool. Got it. But yeah, I think, I think we need to be a little bit brave. Yeah. The last thing I'd say is like sometimes, so I've come into contact a fair amount with some of the women's teams or clubs or owners over in the US. And I feel like that level of savviness around governance and the legal side and equality and equal rights is so much more advanced in the US. Maybe because players, you know, all go through the college system. And I'm a little bit jealous sometimes when I see the level of kind of clout, intellectual clout that I see in the US from time to time, because I I feel like we could do it a little bit more here. That's not to denigrate people. I'm just saying that they're more, they've, they've grown up in a system where they've had to engage with boring stuff like governance whereas here we're struggling to survive (laughs) so we're just trying to get the kit on the back of the players and figure out how to get gym access we're not thinking we don't have the headspace to really think about strategy and governance and power and control 
So obviously we have the legacy in, in England of men's professional clubs and, and the, the wealth and the kind of, I guess, the institutional knowledge in some ways that they've got and, and their finances that have always been underpinning some of the development of women's football. But you've got this, as you touched on at the beginning, this ownership model at, at Lewis have been fan-owned. Both the men's and women's sides are part of the, the same club, fan-owned, financed in the, you know, equally split of not just pay but resources etc do you think there's scope for with the Carney review with the the kind of the the wider fan-led review the implement implementation of the, the the crouch report hopefully at some point possibly who knows for more fan ownership within women's football could that be a route for clubs not to go down the kind of the the hyper commercialization model and to kind of, I guess, maintain some of that competitive balance that, at least in the championship, if not in WSL, is is, is certainly there? I, I don't know. I feel like it's a big ask. It's a tall ask. Mm-hmm. Um, being fan-owned is brilliant, and it's also challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the speed, but the reason I don't know is not because I don't want more fan-owned clubs. I think fan-owned clubs are, especially if you can get that, communication and democracy balance right i think it, it's brilliant it brings football back to communities etc cetera, etc cetera. um the reason i don't know is because the speed at which we're developing women's football is so fast without the sustainability underpinning it that the only way you can keep up is to have a rich benefactor now if that's a single mm-hmm. rich owner that's one thing but the easiest quickest thing is to lean on a men's club where the million pounds is really barely anything for their balance sheet so the consequence of that is potentially a lack of innovation in women's football. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Lewis, we are, you know, we talk about this, we're proud of our match day experience. We're proud of the fact we've got band, a brass band that comes to the games. Uh, we're proud of our food. We're proud of our drink. We're proud of our beach huts. We're proud of our bisexual pirate statue that's currently looking over the pitch. <laughs> but I think all of this means we're just kind of... Um, we're trying to innovate and create and be different and provide stuff for fans so that they keep coming back so they buy the shirt so that they are involved and I think that sometimes if you're just given a million pounds you just focus on paying the players higher wages or uh, buying that extra piece of equipment and you're maybe not innovating or creating in the same way and I think that for me is the is the hardest thing for me to take, you know, for me to just suddenly be given a million pounds. I have to, well, I am slogging my guts out day in, day out to get a fraction of that from a sponsor mm-hmm. or a fraction of that from a partner or, or, or trying to think of another revenue stream. So I put up another coffee and bacon hut up at the ground to try and get in another couple of hundred quid again. Do you know, that's, that's my mm-hmm. reality. Like I'm trying to make money. And my fear with the just leaning on the men's clubs is that no one's actually trying to make money because it's so much easier. My job would be miles easier if all I had to do was go to the board and ask for more money. But there's consequences to that. And that's around innovation. So I'm, I, I want the big clubs to carry on investing in their women's teams. Obviously, like that's all I've ever wanted is for teams to see that they themselves are an ecosystem. And it's we shouldn't have a eat what you kill philosophy. You know, there should be a, a, a sharing, sharing the resources around. But we still have to enable the women's teams to create their own personality, to create their own future, that the money that they're given should be on a long term basis so that they can use that as a platform and and not just year to year where if the men's team get relegated, then sorry, women, you just had your budgets cut. That that's yeah. these are all the dangers that 
hang around dependency on men's football. I, I am a bit disappointed in a way that the better that women's football gets, the more dependent it is on men's football now. It's interesting you say that about what goes on at the dripping pan, all of the different things that you've got going on there, that they are actually there to kind of to draw people in because you're dependent upon the match day income, you're dependent upon that extra 200 quid, having a good ki- having a good catering office so people go and spend not not a couple of quid on a tray of chips, but maybe eight, nine, ten quid on a on a nice burger or on a you know a, de- a decent cup of coffee or go into you. You've got a pub there as well, going and spend some money on some on some beer, and that in itself kind of creates an atmosphere. People get to know each other, people talk, and it creates more more community. So it's interesting that your requirement to generate revenue and not lean upon a men's club might what lies behind the pretty unique and wonderful experience that sounds like a dripping pan i am like so determined to to uh to, to get down to you at some point while we're in the same division probably going to be for the next few years you never know get down have a weekend uh in around uh um sussex and brighton and and and, and come and see sunderland out the dripping pan because i think it'll be fantastic one of the other big things, obviously, that Lewis has been involved in. It's been the FA Cup weekend this weekend. Lots of teams in the northeast have been competing. And lots of Sunderland fans who didn't have a game to go to, a women's game to go to on Sunday, have gone to watch all the, the first-round games in the FA Cup. The Equal FA Cup campaign was something that Lewis pioneered. We kind of joined in a little bit with the Women's Football Fan Collective as well last year. Should we be satisfied with the massive increase and it was a really big increase this season in prize money or is there a lot more to do on on this front in terms of the the fa cup in particular it being a, a competition that shouldn't really be commercially driven in the same way as, as as some of the league structures i think that we have to acknowledge and recognize the shift that was put in from certain people in the fa's side to get that massive increase mm-hmm. um it it was a massive increase and yet it's still a tiny proportion of what the men's prize pot was. Uh, the men's prize pot, by the way, also went up by, I think, potentially by more money than went into the women's prize pot. So we have to recognise that. I, th- I think that this season, hopefully we'll see that as smaller teams are winning thousands instead of hundreds, uh, and hopefully some people in our division and the WSL will be winning tens of thousands rather than thousands. I think that hopefully we'll be able to see, well, hopefully the FA will do some storytelling around, you know, just what it, what that enabled some clubs to do. Apart from, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, I can't even pay my transport to the game. Like, yeah. that, I mean, that's just ridiculous, right? So what we want to be hearing is, wow, now I can pay for a full-time physio at the club. We're like, wow, now, you know, my players have access to better nutrition post-game because we can buy X, Y, Z. I think... Um, I hope that this season we'll see that that bit of a shift, but definitely not. Like I, I think that we can't stop here. I think we can pause, recognize, acknowledge, and then and then we carry on fighting for more. I don't know whether you've seen the Shawshank Redemption film. You must have done. Yeah, yeah. I'm that okay. age. <clears throat> right. So you know, you know the guy. I can't even remember his name, but the guy that writes a letter tries to get books for the library in the prison. Yeah, yeah. And then Andy. finally, after years. You know, he gets a whole bunch of books coming down and the guy's like, oh, well done, you got your books, congratulations, now you can stop writing those letters. And he turns around and says, no, now I'm going to write a letter every day instead of every (laughs) every week. And I feel like that's what it is with the FA Cup prize money. It's like, okay, we've got this shift. That means that people get it. There is a momentum. 
but now we almost have to double down in a way because you know the, the the inequalities and all you're asking for in this particular case is for women to have the opportunity to win it on their own terms to win it we're not asking for a handout it's you know it's just can we can we actually go out there and fight for this knowing that that money can come back into the club and and we can continue to grow and be sustainable so yeah that's how i feel about the the fa cup prize money what one of the wonderful things i think um is the tools that your club produced uh, so that any fan of a, a men's or a women's club across uh, across england could see um the the benefit of the two different models of of um shared prize money um the there's the equal money per game and equal prize pot options and how really other than the men's teams that get to the quarter final the fa cup a properly shared model in either scenario would would have a big benefit for every team competing in both the men's and the women's fa cups across all the rounds and those who get to the quarterfinals of the men's club uh, cup don't need the extra yeah 750 grand or whatever it is that they get um that was something i think we should encourage all of our listeners to go and have a look at and if you're part of a a local club in the northeast or elsewhere men's or women's and and have a look and see the the benefit that a proper proper equal fa cup would would have for football at all levels across across men's and women's football just before we finish obviously we are in the run-up to the the men's world cup in qatar you mentioned it earlier in terms of of how it was given to Qatar, the kind of some of the the corruption and and all of the the, the difficulties that anyone can well people with Netflix can go and can see the documentary that I've been consuming recently as well. What are your thoughts ahead of that that men's World Cup? Will you be watching or do the the equalities and human rights issues that are obviously you know well documented in Qatar and the the workers' rights issue as as well? Will that kind of make it beyond the pale for you yeah the funny thing is that I've, I've barely even thought about it not in a, a lazy way but I think there's there's interesting things like the expansion the fact there's four games a day for like I, I, some of that stuff is just a little bit nuts it's going to be very difficult for anyone to actually follow it in the sense of <clears> before settling down for two games a day and actually like watching kind of these random games that you know I think this time you're just like why there's so there's so many teams and it's like I'm, I don't have any energy or enthusiasm for it. I don't, I, it frustrates me that Qatar still doesn't have a women's national team. Like, mm. <laughs> come on, how can you be hosting a World Cup and not even have a team, let alone? The only time when I'm mixed about it is when it comes to the players. Like the players yeah. have earned their right to, to go to a World Cup. They've earned their right to play for their national team. They've fought and they've, they've fought really hard. And so I don't want any, anyone to criticize players for going because that's their prerogative they don't have any say over where it's held and in fact you know they even though I love it when players stand up and take a stance on issues and I think it's incredibly powerful um, but we should not even require that of them as as fans completely I do respect and admire the players that are able to or strong enough to be able to take a stance but that should not be a given because it's not it's, it shouldn't be down to them. There are so many other people that are benefiting from from this World Cup that you know that we should be holding accountable, not the players. So I feel like for for some of the games, like I'd, I'd watch it for the game's sake, but I don't have any interest in it. In, otherwise, I don't have any interest in the propaganda. I don't have any interest in watching the the glossiness. That the I like I just I can't even. I mean, to, to be frank, even when I see Infantino on TV, I just don't want to 
to engage like yeah. I just I, I just get frustrated so I, I won't be watching much of it if I do it'll be some of the big games where I want the players to to you know to do their best and also yeah. uh, to, to be fair I'm also um you won't tell from my accent but my family are all Scottish my parents are from Scotland all right I grew up on the Isle of Wight but actually my Scottish blood is uh uh, I've never owned an England shirt, but I've got plenty of Scotland shirts. So it's yeah. So maybe maybe that's my boycott as well. <laughs> well, it's it's a bit harder for me because uh, I I live in Wales, married to a, a Welsh woman, got Welsh kids, one of whom is very excited by the whole uh, yeah. whole prospect of Wales uh, being at a World Cup for the first time since 1958. So it's gonna be it's gonna be fun, but I think people shouldn't forget that that football hasn't stopped in England. That women's football will be continuing. We've got this huge game. On Sunday, it's been an absolute delight to speak to you and to hear about Lewis, who I think are still an inspiration for for all right-thinking football fans up and down the country. Um, so thank you very much for your time. Uh, oh, thanks for having and, me on. Uh, yeah, thank I you. won't ask you for a prediction because it's it's a little bit unfair. <laughs> no. But I will I will wish you all the best for the rest of the season after Sunday. So thank you so much for your time today, Maggie. And and yeah, and we'll speak to everyone again very soon. There'll be plenty on the website in the run up to this game and throughout the period of the, the Men's World Cup when we've also got game in the Conti Cup against Manchester City, which is going to be fun as well and then all leading up to that crucial tie with um with coventry at the beginning of december so thanks everyone for listening cheers and we'll speak to you all soon bye bye